What's up, Flatirons? How we doing? Good, good, good. The sun is out. That's good. That's good. Hey, uh, uh, every Tuesday our staff gets together and we have, I guess you could call it a staff meeting, but we don't really talk business stuff at all. We just tell stories. We tell stories of what uh, God's doing in our own lives and doing in the life of this church and our different ministry areas and things like that. And it's just a, it's a really fun time, kind of a family time for our staff to get together and tell stories. And this past Tuesday, uh, we just told stories primarily about two things that happened uh, last weekend, last Friday. Uh, we, we had the honor here at Flatirons Community Church to be able to host the memorial service of Taylor Tifo, the, the Colorado State Patrol cadet who lost his life in the line of, line of duty. And we had the opportunity to uh, kind of wrap our arms around that family. And it, it was one of, those, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had to get to participate in that. And I'm just glad that I'm a part of a church who can uh, reach out and be available in a time of uh, just tragedy like that was. And then uh, we, had, we had great weekend services throughout the weekend. And then a whole bunch of us went down to the Paramount Theater down in Denver, saw a lot of you there, about 2,000 of us were down there. I showed up about 5 o'clock for, a, for what was supposed to start at 6, and there were people lined up out on the sidewalk outside the Paramount to go to church, which was really, really cool. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible night just to get to, for Jim, he shared some, some vision and heartbeat of what's going to happen down there, and then just some time for us to worship together as a church family down there, and just to, to be able to pray over what God's going to do in downtown Denver was really, really exciting. And then on top of that, we've been working through this whole Sermon on the Mount thing. A lot of us, we've been uh, keeping our Bibles on the, on the passenger side of our, of our cars on the way to work. We've been reading and hopefully not running into anybody, or maybe you've been uh, doing what I've been doing, and your, your phone can talk through your speakers magically in your, in your car, and I've been having the Sermon on the Mount read to me every day when I drive to the gym. And so whatever that is, just keep going, all right? God is doing something really new and really fresh and really amazing in the life of this church, all right? So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Sermon on the Mount some more, all right? God, thanks for today. Thanks for this opportunity to come together. I I know in a room this big with this many people, a lot of us are bringing different circumstances to the table right now. Uh, Some of us are in a really, really great place, and the sun is shining in our our lives and outside. And then some of us, we're in a really, really dark place, and we can't even see the sun because uh, things are just really, really hard. So wherever we are on that spectrum today, God, would you, would you speak to us? Would you, um, would you teach us something new about you? And would you do something that only you can do in our lives? Would you change us uh, today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have, we have certain phrases in our cultural vernacular that, that whenever they revolve around making an accurate or best assessment of things, when we're presented with a, with a choice, we might say something like, I don't know, just use your best judgment. Or if we're faced with something uncertain we we got to make a decision about, we, we might say, well, I don't know, I just had to make a judgment call. Or if someone else is stepping into a process that we don't feel like they belong in, we might say, hey, hey, chill, chill let me be the judge of that, right? Or when someone makes a bad decision, we might say they used poor judgment. And perhaps one of the things in our culture that we've come to use is almost this get out of jail free card is this phrase where we look at somebody and get very defensive and say, hey, hey, don't judge me. Or, even, even more so, we, we look at somebody and go, who are you? Who are you to judge me? And then Jesus comes along in this sermon that we've been studying through, and you might remember on the heels of talking about worry to this very worried group of people, he starts talking about this propensity that people have to judge one another. And there's some very, very famous statements we're going to look at here. Whether you've gone to church your whole life or never gone to church, you probably heard some version of this at some point in your life. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it's in your programs, you can pull out your Bibles on the screen. Here we go. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now again, this is probably one of the most memorized Bible verses by Christians and non-Christians alike. And this is one of those where we kind of go King James version on people. We go, judge not lest ye be judged, bro. You know, I mean, that, that, we got, that's how it works in our brain. Now, 
First thing we got to do, though, is we got to understand what the word judge actually means because it's very popular in our culture to go, well, that word means this to me and it may mean something different to you. No, words actually have meaning, objective meaning. We don't get to just decide what they, what they mean. They actually mean something or they don't mean anything. All right, so let, let's talk about what the word judge actually means. And there's multiple layers to this word. The, the first layer simply means to analyze and evaluate, to, to sift through information and make a right decision based on the available information that you have. And in that sense, we're all supposed to do that, right? Jesus is not telling us not to analyze and evaluate and make a right decision based on available information. He's telling us something different. See, because while, while we've all memorized, Jesus said, don't judge or you two will be judged, that Jesus seemingly says exactly the opposite thing at a different point in his ministry when he's preaching at this, this big feast, this big festival in Jerusalem, and people are really, really divided about Jesus because a whole bunch of people who are listening to him teach are going, where'd this guy learn this stuff? He's been a carpenter for like 30 years, and now all of a sudden he shows up out of the, out of the blue and starts teaching us. Like, who is he to tell us what to do with our lives? He's not studied under any rabbis any famous rabbis where does he think he gets this authority and a lot of people wanted to arrest Jesus a lot of people wanted to kill Jesus and and so suffice it to say they are making judgments about Jesus and Jesus finally stops and says to all of them in John 7 24 stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment so in one sense you have Jesus saying don't judge or you'll be judged and then in the next sense you have Jesus saying make a right judgment so which is it well key phrase there is Stop judging by mere appearances. Jesus is going, you, you need to make a right judgment here, but you're using all the wrong criteria. In other words, there's more going on than meets the eye, and you need to push beyond and look beyond the exterior and look deeper, and based on that, make the right judgment or right evaluation. In this case, Jesus is saying, of me. See, that kind of that helps us get to the second layer of what the word judge means, which is, which is this, coming to a conclusion about someone's value. That's very different. When you come to a conclusion about someone's value, their worth, their standing before God, and, and based on their actions, here's the next part, you condemn them based on their actions, that's the kind of judgment Jesus is telling us we are not to do. In fact, he says it very explicitly in Luke 6, 37, when he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. See, I don't have the ability or the authority to condemn anyone. And I I shouldn't even want that ability or that authority. So let me say it this way. Right judgment can judge a behavior without condemning a person. Let me say that again. Right judgment can judge a behavior without condemning a person. Right judgment can look at an action and rightly or correctly declare that action to be either right or wrong based on the available information. Okay, so, so here's kind of the practical way that I filter this. I got four kids, so a lot of my life experiences filter through the way that I interact with them. So what I've learned in my interactions with my kids is my language in dealing with them when they do something wrong is really, really important. And I'm not, I'm not saying just don't swear at them. That's part of it, all right? But, but what, I, what I'm saying is this. Like when one of my kids lies to me, all right? It's one thing to say, you lied to me. That judges an action, Okay. It's a whole other thing to say you're a liar. That condemns a person, right? It's one thing to say you stabbed your brother with a fork, okay? That happens in my house. Maybe I'm the only one, all right? It's another to say you're a terrible criminal and should be locked up for a long time. That's, a, that's, another, that's, a, that's condemning a person. It's one thing to say you didn't take out the trash. It's another thing to say you're lazy. One 
judges an action, the other condemns a person. Now here's one of the tensions, one of the many tensions that exists in our culture. It's increasingly politically incorrect to make right judgments about actions. I don't know if you've missed this or not. It's very politically incorrect to make a right judgment about an action, and it's assumed that when someone does judge an action, they're actually judging a person, even though those aren't the same thing. It's assumed that when you judge my actions, you're, you're condemning me, my value, my worth, my standing before God. And sometimes, as Christians, we just need to own our crap and just go, you know what, a lot of that's our fault. A lot of that's our fault because there's a whole lot of self-proclaimed Christians who make pronouncements and judgments about people's worth and standing before God based on their actions. And the reality is that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus has told us to do. It's not our job. It's not our authority. It's not, it's not in our wheelhouse. We should just stay clear of being the judge and jury over people's worth and value before God. But on the flip side of that, sometimes it's because people who are doing sinful things, and hang on to this, this is really, really key, come to be identified by their sinful actions. So when they hear a judgment about an action, what they hear is actually a judgment about them as a person because you're unable to distinguish the difference between what you do and who you are. See, apart from Jesus, it's impossible to separate your identity from your actions. Our actions define us, not our intentions apart from Jesus. And the Bible is right. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, apart from Jesus. So apart from Jesus, all we have is this is who I am because this is what I've done. This is who I am because this is what I do. That's my very identity. With Jesus, it's very different. This is who I am because of what Jesus has done. That's very different. This is who I am. My identity is determined by what Jesus has done for me when he paid the price for me on a cross. So what, what Jesus is presenting to these folks on this hillside on this day in this famous Sermon on the Mount, these oppressed, worried, overwhelmed people, is simply this. Hey, a better way to live is to be able to distinguish what's right and wrong without assuming that you're responsible for condemning people because, by the way, you're not. You don't have the ability or the authority to do that. That's what Jesus is saying. Now look at verse 2 as he goes on. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is just incredibly practical. What goes around comes around, right? A, a lot of folks who, who read and study this think that what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you, if you go around judging people, God's going to judge you. And he, he may have that in view, but it seems to me that what Jesus primarily has in view is the way that we interact with other people will come back on us from other people. Because about 45 seconds from now, he's going to say another very famous phrase when he says, do to others what you would have them do to you, that famous golden rule thing. So I think what Jesus has in mind is the way we interact with one another. And we see this happen all the time, right? What happens to a person who goes around pointing fingers and condemning people for their bad behavior when that person gets caught in their own bad behavior? What do we do to that person? Oh, we judge that person real fast, don't we? We point fingers and we condemn and we go, look at, look at what you've done. You walked around judging everybody else, now we're going to judge you. That's what we do. And Jesus is just calling that out, going, listen, if you make it your life's mission to condemn others based on their behaviors, don't be surprised when that comes back to bite you. Don't be surprised when that comes back to haunt you. That's just how the world works. So if you want to live in that system, you better be perfect. You better be perfect because when it's your turn... It's not going to go well for you. Not at all. Now, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to make one of the most famous analogies uh, that he ever made. Look at this, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, that's supposed to sound ridiculous. 
Because it's a ridiculous situation that Jesus is trying to illustrate. So when he uses these words, he uses these words very intentionally. So when he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? The Greek word for for look at is, is this Greek word blepo, which literally means to stare intently, to look through, to be fixated, to give your soul attention to. In other words, Jesus is saying, why are you so hung up on this speck, this little thing in your brother's life, in someone else's life? Why are you so perceptive with this thing going on with them? Why are you so good in seeing what's wrong with everybody around you when all the while you pay no attention and that literally means you don't even notice you don't even give a moment's consideration to this huge issue in your own life you don't give your own stuff the time of day you spend all your time pointing out what's wrong with everyone else now here's the ironic thing about this teaching and you're going to notice a lot of irony in Jesus's teaching today all of us every person in this room right now is thinking yeah I hate people like that those judgmental people. In fact, you might have already elbowed somebody going, I wish so-and-so was here because they're the most judgmental person. (laughs) Yeah, those people are horrible, aren't they? You catching the irony in this? We are perhaps the most judgmental of judgmental people. (laughs) So hang on to that because we are all judgmental people. And you might be going, nope, nope, I got a lot of things going on in my life. I am not a judgmental person. All right, let's let Jesus keep teaching us. Look at this, Luke 18. He tells this really cool story in Luke 18, and I like the way it's framed up. Look at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So we talk about this all the time. Somebody who's confident in their own righteousness, that's somebody who thinks, man, I am good with God because I do good things. That's called religion, and religion always leads to one of two places. It always leads to arrogance or depression. In this case, it's leading to arrogance. Look how great I am. I'm glad I'm not as bad as everybody else. Here's the story Jesus tells. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's what you got, all right? You got a religious professional, a Pharisee, all right? He's made his living, made his life by pretending to be very, very good. And because of that, he started to believe the illusion and the delusion that he is good before God because of the good things that he does. And he's become very arrogant based on his perceived good works. And then you have this tax collector. And Jim talked about this last week. Uh, The modern equivalent would be to say a terrorist, all right? These were folks who had turned on their own countrymen to extort money out of the Jewish people to give to Rome and were taking a cut for themselves. They were literally getting wealthy off the backs of their brothers, taking food out of their kids' mouths. So they were were absolutely hated. And this man, he stands at a distance, won't even look up, and he, he beats his chest and says, God, have what? Have mercy. He knows his only hope is mercy. Have mercy on me because I'm a, I'm a sinner. So Jesus says he's declared righteous. He's justified by grace through faith because here's a man. Here's a man who's able to look to himself. He's not looking around at everybody else. All he knows is I have no hope other than the mercy and grace of God. And that's a great story, isn't it? And part of the point of the story is to teach us to look at ourselves. Now, 
Here's the crazy thing. Here's the thing that's so twisted up about the human heart. I've taught that story a bunch of times. I've read that story a million times, heard that story taught a bunch of times as well. And most of the time, when I walk away from that story, you know what I'm thinking, if not saying out loud? Man, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. Do you see the irony? Do you see what's wrong with that? We are probably a lot more like him than we would like to think we are. That's the reality. See, Jesus boils it all down, and it's not really the takeaway that we want. See, here's what we want. Let's just be honest, okay? Let's be honest about what's going on in our hearts. What we want is a truce, okay? You, You got your sin in your life. I got my sin in my life. You got specks and planks, and I got all that going on too. And let's just let's just all not talk about it. Let's just all call it a truce and let's, let's call it a day. Let's not talk about it at all. But that's not, what Jesus, that's not what Jesus says. And that's why we always leave off this next part of Jesus' teaching. We never want to talk about verse 5. Look, look at what he says. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he goes, listen, you're, you're, being, you're being a hypocrite. Don't be, don't be a pretender. Don't be a person who wears a mask. Don't be the person whose exterior life is misaligned with their interior life. If you're walking around with a two by four in your eye, deal with that thing so that, and this is what we never want to look at, so that you can what? See clearly to do what? To remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, the speck in your brother's eye actually does need to be dealt with and removed. See, that's not the same thing as saying, I I won't say anything, you don't say anything, we'll just walk around with with, with sawdust and planks in our eye. No, no, no. We need to see clearly so that we can make right judgments and be helpful to one another. And Jesus says, notice, so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, this is someone you love, this is someone you care about, this is someone you want good for, this is not someone you're interested in condemning, this is someone you're interested in helping, this is someone you have really good intentions towards, someone you want good for. Now, Here's the really interesting thing. We are usually most offended by the things in other people that we struggle with the most ourselves. We get the most riled up and the most judgmental and place the most condemnation on people who do the things that reflect back at us what we hate about ourselves, what we don't like about ourselves, or that we already feel condemned for in our own life. One of my favorite authors, John Stott, says it this way, we have a rosy view of ourselves, (laughs) and a jaundiced view of others. Indeed, what we are doing is seeing our own faults in others and judging them vicariously. That way, we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. I think that's well said. I would probably boil it down and just say it this way. It's easier to be self-righteous than repentant. See, repenting takes thought and honesty and right judgment of our own sin It literally means a change of heart that leads to a change of action. That's what the word repent means. So it's much easier just to look at everybody else and see what's wrong with them than it is to look inward and see what's going on in our own lives. Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Romans when he said this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Let me give you maybe perhaps, because I've been processing this for a while, okay, this is something I've been having trouble getting a hold of in my mind and in my heart, but let, let me give you probably the most blatant example I can give you from the Bible with one of the most famous people ever in the Bible, probably top five most famous people in the Bible, this guy in the Old Testament named King David. Again, if you've never gone to church, maybe you heard of him, if not, you maybe heard of his son named Solomon, okay? King David lived most of his life, he was the king of Israel, and he lived most of his life at war. Okay? Most of his life he lived out on the battlefield, uh, being chased by his enemies or chasing his enemies down. He was a warrior king. And he arrived at a certain point in his life where he just thought, you know what, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that. So when it was time to go out to battle, this time around, what King David says, you know what, I'm going to hang back. I got all these generals, I got all these men, I got all these people who can fight my battles for me. I'm going to hang back at the palace and just kind of chill. So that's what he does. He hangs back, he just chills, and a bored man is a dangerous man. We've talked about this. So, so one night, he's out walking around on the roof of his palace, and he looks out along the, the homes that circle around the palace, and a lot of those homes were inhabited uh, by families of these famous men known as David's fighting men. They were like this elite force of warriors who were like his personal guard, who had, who had sworn their allegiance to David. They would give their very life for him. He had been out in battle with them many, many times, blood, sweat, and tears. And so one of those men had his house very near the palace, and his name was Uriah. He's away at war where he's supposed to be, but his wife, in the cool of the evening, as is done very often in the Middle East, is on the roof of her house taking a bath. David sees her, he lusts for her, wants her, sends a messenger to her demanding that she come to him, and Bible commentators can argue ad nauseum over whether it was a forcible rape, but make no mistake, she didn't have a choice. She didn't have a choice, he has sex with her, and he sends her home. The wife of this man who had sworn his life to David, his brother, he does this too. A little time goes by, he gets, he gets word from Bathsheba, from the woman, saying, hey David, we got a problem, I'm pregnant, and Uriah's been gone a long time. So David goes into cover-up mode. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll send for Uriah from the battlefield. So he, he brings Uriah home from, from the battle and he throws a big barbecue and gets him drunk and then sends him home, knowing how that story ends. But then gets when the next day that Uriah, even in his drunken state, had more honor in his little finger than David had at this point in his life because he was sober enough to realize, how can I go inside and sleep with my wife when my brothers are out mending their wounds on the battlefield? Can't do that. And he sleeps outside. David goes, this, this ain't working, we got to try this again. So he brings him back another time, and he throws another party, gets him drunk again, and even encourages Uriah, man, go home, sleep with your wife, enjoy the time here because you've got to go back to the battlefield. And Uriah's like, no, I, I can't do that. He sleeps outside again. So now David resorts to like plan C at this point, and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a, with a letter, a sealed letter, and he says, I want you to deliver this to Joab, the, 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 the general of the army. And little does Uriah know he's carrying his own death certificate. The orders go down like this. Hey, next time you're in a battle, make sure you rise on the front line and at a certain point withdraw from him, leave him by himself and let him get killed. And that's what they do. David gets the news. Uriah is dead and he thinks he's gotten away with it. In fact, he goes so far as to play the role of the noble king who would bring Bathsheba into his house to be his wife, this widow of one of his brothers. After her time of mourning is up and Oh, King David, look how noble you are. He thinks he's gotten away with it until, look at this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up and grew up with him, with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was almost like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Are you hanging with the metaphor? It seems pretty blatantly obvious. It seems like something that David should immediately recognize himself in, but he doesn't. Why is that? Well, he can't see clearly. Why? Because he has like a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. This horrible thing that he's done. And he doesn't even get that this is a hypothetical story that he's being told that's actually about him. He can't even see that. Look at how he reacts Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Look how angry David gets over a sheep. Look at that. We are usually most offended by the things in other people that we struggle with the most ourselves. Right now it's on a subconscious level for David. He hadn't come to terms with it yet, but you have to understand this is a man who's referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. You think that even at a subconscious level he didn't recognize that what he had done was horrible? Then Nathan, man, he does a brave thing. This is a brave thing to say to the king when he looks at him and goes, you are the man. David, you're the man. Do you see this? Let me help you out here. You're the man. He goes on to kind of lay out, this is what you've done, David. And, and what does David respond with? He says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah, you have. One of the cool things about uh, the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible is a lot of them are basically just David's prayer journal. This is the prayers and songs he wrote down in the midst of his circumstances. And we actually get a psalm that was written in the midst of these circumstances, Psalm 51. Go read all of it today. It's it's an amazing psalm. I'll just read you a little bit of it. But in the midst of all this going on, this is what David prays to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart. You can't make your own clean heart, folks. We've been talking about that throughout this series. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit does it sound like nathan calling out the sin in david's life was beneficial for david absolutely and the reason it was beneficial was because it was for david's restoration not his condemnation that's not what nathan had in mind nathan didn't put himself in god's seat he simply pointed out what david had done which was undeniably wrong. Rape and murder and a cover-up, that's pretty bad, right? David came clean and found forgiveness and healing and he was restored. So this isn't about never pointing out how someone we love is in error, sinning or making mistakes. That's not what this is about. This is about us first looking at ourselves, then helping those we love. And here's what I've been learning. One of the best ways to do this, when when you find yourself judging and condemning and making value statements about people, either in your mind or out loud, the first thing to do in that moment is to ask the question, what does this say about me? What does this say about me? What is it in me that makes me so quick to condemn this person? So let me give this disclaimer, all right? Our judgments about other people sometimes might be absolutely accurate might be spot on. But the point here is to look at ourselves first 
But we always do the opposite. We always look at everybody else all the time because it's much easier to do that than it is to look at ourselves. And uh, Again, everybody in this room here today thinks, "Ah, I'm not really a judgmental person, but I know someone who is. Right? Uh, Let me just go first. I'm the most judgmental person I know. I am. I'm the most judgmental person I know. I'll give you just three examples, okay, because this could turn into another 10-week series if we just talk about Scott's judgmental attitude, but I'm really, really quick to judge those that I perceive to be religious or churchy people. That's, that's one, one issue in my life. And so when I ask the question, what does that say about me? Why is that? There's probably a million answers. One of them is probably this. my perception of churchy religious people is they don't care at all about being cool, especially to people who don't follow Jesus. And if I'm really, really honest, I want to come across as cool. But they live free from that pressure of trying to be cool, and I kind of resent that. Let me give you another example. I'm really quick to condemn people that I perceive to be lazy or undisciplined. What's that say about me? Well, I live in fear of that ever being said of me. That would cut me to the core. That would end me if someone, if someone said, you're, you're a lazy, undisciplined person. I've always thrived on being a, a hard worker. The downside to that is, is I have a propensity to try to earn things that I cannot earn, especially the grace of God, which is a gift. Grace is opposed to earning, right? I'll give you another example. I'm very quick to condemn those who are willing to stand out and be different in any way, shape, or form. And the reason for that, what's that say about me, is I can be a real chameleon. I I can fit in anywhere I go, become like whoever I'm hanging out with. My identity can shift and change based on my context and circumstances. And then I look at people who just don't care what context they're in. They just are who they are at all times, and I'm a little bit jealous of that. (laughs) Now, those are just reasons. They're not excuses. I'm not a fan of making excuses. Blaming all the things we do wrong on our proverbial daddy issues or whatever they may be. But we need to be really, really honest about the reasons we have a tendency to do the certain things that we do. And the only way to do that is to identify those those reasons. Then we can own them, take responsibility for them, and move out, out of them. See, reasons don't rid us of responsibility. They just help us understand our tendencies. That's the function. Now, I went first. What about you? Who is it that you're so quick to condemn? What's that say about you? Why is that? Is it people of a certain race? What's that say about you? Is it people with a certain sexual orientation? What's that say about you? Is it Republicans? Is it Democrats? Is it Raiders fans? That just says you're a wise and discerning follower of Jesus. You know, I... (laughs) Wow. Is it fat people? Is it pretty people? Is it skinny people? Is it depressed people? Is it disciplined people? Is it undisciplined people? Is it people who dress a certain way? Is it people with tattoos? What, what is it? Who is it? Now, the reality is we don't often see this really clearly. So a lot of us in this room right now are going, I don't know. I don't know. That's why everyone needs a Nathan. Everyone needs a Nathan. Everybody needs somebody in their life that you have given permission to, look, speak truth hard truth into my life. And not everybody qualifies to be your Nathan, by the way. They, they, gotta, they gotta meet some really big requirements. Number one, do they love Jesus? Number two, do they see clearly? Because not everybody who loves Jesus sees clearly. Number three, do they have a proven track record of caring about you, not condemning you? So if you got that person or those people in your life, here's the homework this week, all right? This, again, this is not a week where it's like, let's go think about this. No, here's something to do. 
okay? You'll either do it or you won't, okay? That's on you, but, but here it is. Find that person, whoever that is, or those people, whoever they are, and ask them these questions. What actions do you see in my life that don't line up with following Jesus? What are those things? What are my blind spots? What are the things I don't see clearly? What do I need to work on in my life? And here's the last question. This is important. Will you help me with that? Will you help me with that? You see the level of trust you have to have in that person? That's totally different than you sin, I'll sin, and we just won't talk about it. That's totally different. Let me also say this. There's a huge difference between having a Nathan in your life and having someone be a self-appointed Nathan in your life. I got plenty of those people, all right? People who want to volunteer to be your biggest critic, the ones who don't know you and don't really care about you. You don't need any more of those, all right? I have a few people in my life who they can say whatever they want to me because I know they love Jesus, they see clearly, and they love me. And you only need a few of them. So you could sum that up by saying you need some people in your life that are a lot like Jesus. See, Jesus demonstrated this concept perfectly. Perfectly. I don't know if you've read much or studied much about Jesus. If you've been coming here for a while, you hear us teach about him all the time. But Jesus never pulled any punches. He never, he never refused to talk about the thing in someone's life. In fact, Jesus had this really annoying habit of whenever he interacted with people, he would bring up the one thing in their life they didn't want to talk about. Almost every time. But everyone who interacted with Jesus seemed to come to this understanding that Jesus wasn't doing that to condemn them. Jesus was doing that to be helpful because Jesus loved them. See, the, the one person, Jesus, who had the right to condemn everyone in the room in any room that he walked into, didn't. He didn't. Consequently, sinful, messed up, broken people walked away from Jesus, restored, made new, and different. That's been a lot of our experiences in this room, hasn't it? See, that's a lot of our stories. You can look back and go, I don't, I don't know everything about the Bible. All I know is this. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He did not come to put a finger in your chest. He came to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to clear things up. And he went way beyond removing a speck of sawdust from our eye, right? He removed the sin and the shame and the guilt it was way more than a speck of sawdust. It's way overwhelming. It's a burden that cripples. It's a burden that we couldn't carry. It's overwhelming. And he took it for us on our behalf so that we could be free from condemnation and judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So maybe we should wrap up this way today. Number one, I think we should take a few, few minutes just to thank God he didn't send his son to condemn us, but rather to save us. That, that alone is worth <laughs> infinity worth of praise, right? Number two, we should ask him to search our hearts and reveal to us the messed up places in there. God, there's things we don't see. There's blind spots we have. Would you bring some of that, as painful it is, to the surface so that we can see clearly, so that we can deal with it, and so that we can ask you to deal with it? Maybe the third thing we need to do for a lot of us in here is ask him, would you put someone in my life like Nathan that I can trust, that can speak truth into my life, someone that loves you, someone that sees clearly, and someone that loves me? God, would you put that person in my life? Let's ask him. God, come before you right now. Number one, we just want to say thank you. 
Thank you that you did not send your son into the world to condemn us, but you sent your son to save us. God, right now, would you, in these next few moments as we sing this song, would you, would you bring some of those things that we haven't seen clearly to the surface so that we can maybe see them clearly for the first time, as painful as that might be, to see the places where we fall short, the place where we're messed up, the place of just dysfunction? Would you bring, would you bring those things to the surface? And, and then, God, would you put someone in our life that could help us work on that, someone who loves you, sees clearly, and loves us? God, would you help us to do this well with one another, not to condemn one another, but to see clearly into each other's lives because we love one another? God, that would be a great church to be a part of. Would you do that in our church? Would you create that kind of a church with us? God, by your grace and by your mercy and through the power of your Holy Spirit, make us us new and make us different. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.